What's up, y'all? It's your girl, Nurse Ree, and you're tuning in to Forensic Nurse Files. This is an informative but fun true crime podcast that follows the careers of three forensic nurse examiners. We just want to note that this podcast uses foul language, some sarcasm, and contains descriptions of adult themes and violence that some people may find disturbing. So if you need support, please check the show notes or visit our website. Welcome back, guys. We're just going to pick right up where we left off last week. The other part that we actually really like is our evidence collection. So our patient is our crime scene. We're not out like, the you know, the cops yes. at the crime scene like you see in the movies. Our patient comes in and they are our crime scene. We are getting any and all evidence we can possibly find or uh, off of that patient. And the evidence we collect is based on the medical forensic history that that patient provides us. And the physical exam as well. So if sometimes we have patients who are what we call a loss of awareness, LOA. They don't remember anything. Perhaps they've been strangled to the point of unconsciousness or they've been beat or drugged or drunk or whatever it is. So they might just not or traumatized. They don't remember anything. So then we have protocol for what evidence we collect. But if our patient says, oh, um, they, um, they put their mouth on my left breast, uh, they ejaculated on my right inner thigh, anything they said that the suspect might have done, we want to gather evidence there. Uh, We also use something called, uh, um, what's the name of our light? (laughs) Wood's lamp. Alternative light source. (laughs) Alternative light source. (laughs) So we have this light, we put on goggles, we turn off the light and we can scan, we can use the light to basically let's try to get a flashlight but in the dark it is different with these glands these uh these mm-hmm. goggles you can everything uh is like fluorescent what do you call it fluorescent or whatever i'm having a bad day talking to it's like a black light you guys have you ever been under a black light and like certain yeah. things glow that's yeah exactly we're, we, we use a black is. light on our patients <laughs> but exactly <laughs> that i'm trying to explain it but for some reason today i'm like can't think of the right words. I don't know why. So anyway, um, so we see that. So if we see any any bodily fluids would illuminate and we would consider those uh, potential um, evidence. So we would always swab that area and we would document it that the woods lamp or alternative light source indicated that there was something there. Now it could be something that belongs to the patient. It could be some lotion or something, but we don't know. So we want to make sure that we... Um, we collect evidence off the body. You know, even before I start talking mm-hmm. about the swabs that we use, I know what goes in, what is in people's minds a lot of the time is, I hear this question all the time. How do you avoid cross-contamination? How do you know that's going to be their DNA, my DNA? How do you do that? Yeah. Well, we bleach, we bleach the shit mm-hmm. out of those rooms. They are bleached from head to toe, you know, basically floor to ceiling. Every single thing is bleached inside that room in between patients. Mm-hmm. So, and gloves are changed continually if they become soiled. Yeah. So something else I want to touch on about cross-contamination. So you want to make sure you're wearing a mask when you're doing this so that you're not breathing over your swabs. You know, no spit gets on your swabs. And some centers will have buccal swabs of the examiners on file with the crime lab just so that they can rule out the examiner's DNA against any kit that they collect. All right, now let's get into the nitty gritty of our actual evidence collection and how we do that. You guys have heard us say swab so many times. Well, what the hell are swabs? So our swabs are long Q-tips. That's exactly what they look like, except for they only have the cotton head on one side. They can be pretty brittle, so we have to be careful with them. 
And when you're swabbing, you're gonna wet your swabs with sterile water. Some places wet both swabs with sterile water, some just do one. And then you're gonna use moderate pressure and you're gonna roll the swabs over the area. So as you're, so you're gonna rub back and forth, holding your swabs on the area. And while you're rubbing back and forth, you're gonna also be rolling your swabs to ensure that your swabs, all sides of your swabs are covered with the potential And you really DNA. wanna, that's really important because when you have two swabs, you picture two Q-tips together and we have two of each area that's swabbed. And the reason we do that is we need to make sure for court purposes that there is a swab available for the prosecution and there's a swab available for the defense. And they have to have the same thing. If you didn't swab it correctly and you didn't, you got maybe a suspect DNA on one of the swabs and not the other. Now there's a question that can come up in court as to whether or not that was evidence that was, you know, that, that was admissible in court. And when it comes to how you're going to swab for evidence, there's different swabbing techniques. And the one I talked about where one swab is wet and one swab is dry is referred to as the double swabbing technique, even though every center probably uses two swabs. The double swab technique specifically refers to one wet and one dry. And there are studies out there that show that using a moist swab first, will loosen and then absorb whatever liquid and DNA that that loosens up. And then the dry one will pick up that remaining liquid, picking up the remainder of the DNA, thus maximizing your potential for DNA collection. There's really not a right or wrong way to do this, you guys. It seems like it's really either the facility's preference or the crime lab's preference. One thing that's been a standard in the multiple facilities that I've worked in is the collection of urine on all of our patients or victims or anybody that we're seeing in the SART Center. So we wanna try to collect urine on everybody that comes through. And something that's new now is that they want us to collect two urine samples 20 minutes apart, which is probably gonna be an issue. Yeah, that's something that we I learned about at a summit uh, with, with a bunch of criminalists. They were explaining that. That is new. We also have the option to draw blood. So some places say only draw blood if it's within 24 hours of drug and alcohol use. And then some places are like, just draw it with everyone. Right. So I don't know. What's your guys' um, practice, Ellie? For we, we draw, take urine on everybody always. Yeah. It's just our protocol. Yeah. Yeah. Same. We're not punishing the victim for being intoxicated. We It shows that the victim wasn't able, or the victim or patient wasn't able to give consent because they were, um, they were um, impaired. So mentally impaired. Yeah. So just, it's not like, oh my gosh, they're going to take my urine because I'm going to get in trouble because I, you know, did some meth or I, you know, drank some alcohol. No, uh, you're not there to get in trouble because it, that actually helps your case showing that you weren't able to provide consent. Um, we do reference swabs yeah. for um, blood or we do blood or saliva for um, the patient's DNA, of mm -hmm. course. So we can isolate that as anything we find with that DNA belongs to that patient. We do the buccal, which is the uh, swab of the inside of the cheek. Yes. So we use anything just to, to uh, clarify, anything that we swab in a dry area, mm -hmm. the skin, external, that type of stuff, not a moist surface. We use uh, sterile water to, you know, to wet the swabs mm -hmm. and anything inside, we have enough mm -hmm. secretions in our body, like our, our cheek or inside our vaginal area, it's like our cervical area. And there's enough um, to, to, you know, get the swab without using any, anything else. So I just wanted to clarify on that one. And then we, um, mm -hmm. if we do those or, but that's for DNA, like a reference sample, but if we also do oral swabs, like in the mouth or perioral around the mouth, 
if it's been less than 24 hours since there's been an oral copulation or kissing or anything, then we can still get something from those areas potentially. That's another big reason that we really try to encourage our patients, victims to come in as soon as possible because when there's been oral cop, meaning oral sex or kissing or whatever, within 24 hours, our oral mucosa and salivary glands play a part in degrading that evidence at such a high rate that we really only have 24 hours to collect that and for it to be still be present. 120 hours, up to 120 hours after an assault. The longer, the, the longer it goes since the assault, the less likely there is to have evidence. And if there's showering or any, any changing clothes, all those type of things, they, the DNA, um, becomes less and less. So it's something to keep in mind. Five days, guys. Five days. That's it. That's not even enough time to process what just happened to you, let alone come into a center, let someone violate you again, rehash this whole incident, tell it to a stranger, go through this whole process. We know it's not easy. We know it's not a simple ask. We're just asking you to dig deep and muster up any ounce of courage that you have to come in so that we can put this person behind bars so that no one else has to suffer at their hands. We should talk about the fingernails. Yes. Free. Yeah, so fingernail scrapings. That's something that we do on every suspect, every loss of awareness, and then also just depending on what the victim discloses happened during the incident. And so when we do fingernail scrapings, we use, again, they are kind of like swabs. They're like these longer swabs and they're pointed at the end so that you can get under the fingernail, the top of the fingernail. So we'll swab, 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 the top of the fingernail, and then we'll go underneath and um, we'll swab underneath the nail. And you're doing that over this little like... It's almost like a piece of wax paper, like a tiny piece of wax paper, and you're doing it over that so that if any debris falls out from underneath the fingernail when you're swabbing, you're also able to collect that and package that. Yeah, and it's really important. I don't know if you want to explain why it's so important um, to get these fingernail scrapings and any potential DNA off the hands. Yep. And just to add, like not every facility does the top of the fingernails. Most just do underneath, especially when it comes to loss of awareness or scratching or anything like that. The nail beds just hold so much. If you think about it, if you're a nurse, first of all, you know, we're not allowed to have fake nails, right? Why? Because they harbor and they carry things. So when these type of things happen, the fingernails can be, we don't think about it a lot, but the fingernails can be such an invaluable source of DNA. Like, like I said, say the victim scratches the suspect. Maybe, yeah, they've showered. Maybe, yeah, they've washed their hands, but maybe they haven't really thoroughly cleaned underneath their fingernails. So you'll have that potential DNA source just right there, literally at your fingertips. That's really, really important. And I know that sometimes people skip that step and I'm not really sure why, but let's just picture somebody strangling you, right? And their hands around your neck. Your Mm -hmm. initial reaction is to remove those hands from your neck so so you can breathe, right? You would be taking your hands if they were free and available and pulling down. And in that process, you're Mm -hmm. getting all kinds of the suspect's DNA, assuming they're not, you know, completely gloved up. 
but you're getting all kinds of DNA that way. So it is super exactly. duper important. Uh, yeah. And that kind of brings us uh-huh. into debris because it's low key, right? a form of debris, right? And so that's any kind of material that can fall off the patient when they're undressing or that can be found on their body during the exam. And so initially when a patient comes in for an exam, we usually have them change into a hospital gown and because we have to collect their clothing. And so we would have them change over like a large sheet of, we don't have our old kits. Our old kits came with Mm -hmm. like a large piece of paper that we could use. We use some of that wax paper off the bed. If you guys have ever been in like an exam room in a hospital or an urgent care, you know, they have that wax paper that they pull down over the exam table Mm -hmm. or exam chair where you're going to sit in. So we use a piece of that. We'll put it on the floor and we'll have the victim change on top of that so that if anything falls off, we have that and we yeah. are able to collect And it's that. important because the debris could be anything. It could, let's just say somebody was assaulted, whether it was sexually, physically in a wooded area or an area with leaves or dirt or gravel. And we might be able to collect some of that off of the patient and link them or paint chips, anything like that. Now we had a, uh, we had a two, well, it wasn't me. It was somebody I know, um, that had a two year old child who, um, was, they did an exam for, you know, you know, possible sexual assault. And a lot of time we don't see any injuries like we've talked about on these patients. And especially if it's just, you know, touching or fondling or touching a private to a private, you might not have any injuries at all. And that, uh, forensic nurse examiner, found one pubic hair on that patient. Well, a two-year-old doesn't have pubic hair. So that's something that was collected, one pubic hair that linked a suspect to that patient. So it's really, really important when we collect this evidence that we are just really on point and paying attention to everything. Oh, we're not just looking for DNA. We're not just looking for injuries. Anything that we see, um, you know, we want to take it. So especially when it's those LOAs, loss of awareness, you know, maybe they don't know where they were and maybe, you know, maybe we get some grass or some gravel and, and maybe there's somebody that was seen somewhere in that area. Mm -hmm. And we've had incidents where we Mm -hmm. collect this evidence off of the patients and there's no linking. We don't know who it is. We never find that suspect for that crime. However, again, we talked about this, I think, in our last episode. We put that, all that DNA goes into the, uh, the D- National DNA da- Database and the CODIS system, and mm-hmm. it can come up with somebody else. So maybe we can't tie them to this person, but maybe we can tie them to someone else. Or, you know, so it's actually really, um, <laughs> I think it's kind of hard to get away with crime these days with, with our advanced technology. Oh, 100%. I mean, just looking in the news and seeing how many, like, serial killers from back in the day are getting caught these days. Like, y'all ain't getting away with shit no more. You can run, but you can't hide. (laughs) So then you don't care how old you are. You're going down. Clothing collection. We (laughs) talked a little bit about collecting clothing. Um, Sometimes uh, clothing is cut off of a patient, um, but we want to try to preserve it as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, Any stains that could corroborate um, any force against the patient. Uh, again, we examine the full body for injuries, lesions, secretions, uh, document with our photos. And uh, if bike marks are present, we mm-hmm. always want to swab the area a couple of times. Again, we talked about our alternative mm-hmm. light source or woods lamp light or uh, floor. What do you call it? The black light. 
um, collection, um, head hair yeah. combings and pubic hair combings, like I just talked about. Sometimes a patient will have their hair pulled or they'll pull the patient's hair. Um, and I talked about the pubic hair. Um, we also talked about the sperm, you know, and other DNA can survive up to five days, 120 hours inside the female reproductive tract and, you know, mm -hmm. any um, surfaces, you know, other surfaces. So again, you know, within those 120 hours, we can still collect evidence. So, and then for our female sexual assault exams, when we're talking genital swabs, we're going to do the MONS, which is kind of your pelvic area, that just top area where the pubic hair starts. We're going to do the external genitalia, which is like where just looking at your female genitalia, it's everything that you can see without spreading everything. You're going to swab all that. You're going to do a perianal swab. You're going to do, if you're doing an anal exam, you're going to use your um, anoscope and you're going to insert that and you're going to do maybe anal swabs. If not, you're going to just insert some swabs and do rectal without the anoscope. And then you're going to do, lastly, your um, speculum. You're going to open that and you're going to do four vaginal swabs and then two cervical. And so those are the main swabs that you do when it comes to a female sexual assault. And then for males, sexual assaults, you also, again, do the mons, the glands, which is the head of the penis, the shaft, which is kind of the body of the penis, the scrotum, and then the same, perianal, anal, rectal. Something that also people might not know is that our swabs have to dry for an hour. If you're using a dryer or you just let them air dry, you want to let them sit for at least an hour. And so while your swabs are sitting, because we put them in envelopes, right? And so you don't want to put anything wet just like directly into an envelope and have them like seeping through and then the envelope's soggy. So while you're allowing your swabs to dry, you can be completing your forms doing whatever else you need to do. And then you come back and you seal your envelopes. So we can post maybe on our social media what a sexual assault kit looks like and what the individual envelopes look like. We just got new kits, which I don't know how I feel about them. I'm like in a love-hate relationship yeah, with them right now. They're easier for us, but um, I think you and I had this conversation previously. They, uh, The criminalists don't like them. No, they can't stand them. They, they said don't? they opened something and then there's swabs all over. They, I... they, they, they had a lot of reasons why they don't like them and they want to go back to the old kits. See, I feel that. I'm like, why are my swabs just like free balling in That's this what envelope? They said like, there's no and they protection. Open it and they, fall out. they don't reseal them. So they could previously put them back in the box and put them in and they would stay separate. But they're, they're all over. They said they open yeah. it a second time. They have to go into it multiple times. They go into it and there's swabs all over the place. Oh, yeah, you guys. We'll have to post a picture of what we're talking about because previously we would put our swabs in these little boxes before we would put them in their respected envelopes. But now they've changed our kits over to where they really just go in the envelope without any protection. So that's what I'm talking about when I say, why wow, my swabs just freeballing in the envelope. It's just not cool. That is, see, and I hate it for that, but I love it because of how small the main like it's not bulky when I seal the main envelope it's like okay this is very easy to seal and it's compact and it just seals but I feel very uncomfortable just putting my naked yeah. swabs in that it's envelope yeah we'll have to post a picture and then finally we have to um, we seal up we talked about how much we love our evidence tape it's very uh very temperamental very thin but it has to be intact and then we sign um date and an we sign date and time, you know, across. So if you picture the piece of red evidence tape that says evidence, sealing the envelope all the way around. 
And then we sign our name across. So it goes from the envelope across the tape to the other side of the envelope, the date and the time. And the reason for that is any disruption of any of that would show that the evidence could um, potentially have been tampered with and is inadmissible. So y'all, that's really the basis of our evidence collection when it comes to our sexual assault patients. We do also collect evidence on our domestic violence patients, dependent on if it's associated with a sexual assault or there's strangulation involved. There are some other circumstances that may warrant evidence collection on those victims. Um, Some hospital-based forensic nurse examiner programs are also able to collect evidence on gunshot patients. They can swab the bullet wound for GSR, gunshot residue. Um, They can take pictures of the wound up close and look for stippling. They may even be able to collect the bullet in a specimen cup and submit that to their crime lab. There's a lot of different things out there that forensic nurses can do. Once we're done with a kit and everything's been packaged up and signed and sealed appropriately, what happens next is going to vary from center to center. Some places you may have law enforcement there waiting for the kit and so they'll take it away with them once you're done. Some places have cabinets where you're able to lock it up until law enforcement is able to come pick it up. Some places have a refrigerator where you're able to store it until law enforcement's able to come pick it up. It just depends on what center you're working at or getting treated at. And so the last thing really to talk about is our chain of custody and what happens once we're done with our kit. So we talked about those forms that we have to fill out that we hand right in that are anywhere around, you know, 10 pages long. Um, on the very last page, on the very last section, There's a spot for law enforcement to sign um, next to what items they're picking up, whether it be clothing, evidence, blood, urine, um, because those are all booked separately. Our kit only contains the swabs. So when we collect urine, that's outside the kit. When we collect clothing, that's outside the kit. When we collect blood, that's also outside the kit. So they have to sign next to each item that they're picking up. And then underneath that, there's a spot for them to print their name, sign their name, date, time, ID number, what agency they're with, their phone number, all of that jazz. And a copy of that goes inside the evidence kit before we seal it up. So that was just a quick crash course on evidence collection in our SART centers. Thank you guys so much for sticking with us. Y'all stay safe and we'll catch you next week.